This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Claire Jasper. Thanks for joining me and the ABC Rural Crew for another year of stories about food and fibre. And this morning is no exception. We're talking about farming in containers, automating the shearing process and recovering from a life-changing accident on the farm. Yeah, adjusting to, to home life's been, it's been a challenge. Not being able to, to do the th- things I used to do. And, but yeah, we're slow, slowly learning um, how, to, how to get through it all at home. stories soon but first Serena Locke is here to help me run through this week's biggest rural news. Good morning Serena. Hello Clint. Yes we're kicking the week off with some big stories. Yeah well let's kick this morning off with a look at one of the biggest global flashpoints at the moment. Russia amassing troops at the border of Ukraine. Ukraine's actually known as Europe's breadbasket so what's at stake if this becomes a full-on conflict? Yeah, to to say it's a breadbasket is really an understatement. Mm. It's quite incredible. So Ukraine, and it's grown really recently, hasn't it? So Ukraine produces 12% of the global wheat supply, 16% of its corn. So the threat of military activity is really having an unsettling effect on prices. They're bouncing around at the moment. When Russia annexed Crimea, the global wheat market spiked 20%. And uh, that was a decade ago, but uh, it's only you know, their production has only increased since then. Their importance has increased. A market analyst with Mercado, Adrian Lednitsky, says the fertile territory east of Ukraine's Dnieper River is really vulnerable. Now, in terms of wheat production, that actually represents 47% of Ukraine's total wheat production. And in terms of corn, uh, around 40%. Of production of corn production for Ukraine is centred east of the Dnieper River as well. But the real story isn't just about the, where the production's occurring. Disruption to railway, uh, river transport, um, and particularly the ports within the Ukraine, uh, down in the Black Sea region, um, is really what will end up driving um, grain prices higher. And much of Ukraine's harvest goes to Southeast Asia, predominantly Indonesia, Malaysia and Bangladesh. And Australia has traditionally been a big grain exporter to Indonesia. So sort of remains to be seen if uh, Australia picks up any markets or, you know, what really happens in the global geopolitical scene. I have always wanted to see Ukraine's agricultural area. The, the A farmer in South Australia was showing me some pictures of his Nuffield tour through that region. The soil is literally like potting mix, so black and rich in carbon. And yeah, which can bog the um, the big heavy yeah, <laughs> military exactly. machinery. And, you know, the machinery they still use is so old and yet they produce so much. And the amount of water they have for irrigation would just make, I guess, some of the irrigators here's eyes water because it's plentiful to say the least. Yeah. But moving on, the high cattle prices we saw last year are continuing. Yeah, so the cattle price has been driven by two main factors this last couple of years. 
Farmers are restocking after the drought and there's a global shortage of protein. Now at cattle sales already, the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, otherwise known as the ECI, has started 2022 by breaking yet another record. It's up nearly 40% on the same time last year. Meat and Livestock Analyst at Global Agri-Trends, Simon Quilty, says he's keenly anticipating the report in the middle of this year about just how many cattle are in Australia before he can really say how high the prices are going to go. It all comes back to the size of the Australian herd. By mid-year, we'll have the figures available that will be the most accurate we've seen in the last five years on how large this herd size is. I'm of the opinion that it's somewhere around 22 to 23 million head, one of the lowest herds we've seen almost in 40, 45 years, that is almost at historic lows. And so that is why we've got these extraordinary prices, but also it gives us a great idea of how quick the rebuild will occur. Well, butchers have been feeling the pinch of those high cattle prices, but the latest uh, COVID wave has delivered a surprise turnaround. Yes, so meatworks are high-risk workplaces and COVID cases um, have been rising there. Also, the need to isolate has meant production was down. So we saw the result. Um, there was empty supermarket fridges. And so shoppers turned to their local butchers instead, leading to a 40% jump in sales in January for this Central West New South Wales butcher. Michael Stanton is the owner of A&B Quality Meats in Bathurst. It's been good sort of the last 18 months with COVID. Like it's just um, people being home and not going anywhere. So just the last two weeks, you know, picked up again. I thought we would have dropped off. Normally, you know, this time of year, holidays, people are away and travelling around, but they're, they're sort of stuck home again. And then with the coals, especially here, you know, not being able to get that meat on the shelves, no no chicken at all there when we come back on the 10th. And we sort of, you know, sort of sold three days worth of chicken in one day. It was just crazy. This is a potentially more concerning story for me. The health restrictions for workers is leading to a shortage of potato chips. Yeah, terrible news. So this um, big vegetable processor in South Australia is dealing with the state's strict COVID isolation rules. The forced isolation of exposed to COVID is 10 days in South Australia compared to seven days in other states. And it's limiting the company's ability to supply spuds. Uh, there's also been rain in Victoria. That's held up harvest. Now, Renee Pye is the manager of Zarella Fresh. She says nearly 70% of her workforce were affected at Virginia and Perilla in South Australia. And so she wanted the state to reduce that isolation time period in line with other states. It's incredibly stressful. We will be relieved once this next two weeks is over and we're sort of just trying to pull people from all different areas of our business to fill those roles that need to be filled and try and train people as quickly as possible on machines that need skilled people to run them as well. The crippling impact of COVID-19 on the hospitality industry has convinced a pasture-raised egg producer to call it quits recently. Yeah, so he's been going for five years, working 100 hours a week, and the egg farmer wants less stress in his life and more time for his family. Paul Heaton from a place Fat Belly Farm on the Sunshine Coast is looking to rehome 1,400 chickens, and he's putting them up for sale. But in the last sort of six to eight weeks, it's really driven home that it's just not worth the stress in the current circumstances. So, yeah, we pulled the pin on it. 
we just have to oh, get used to it all now and get rid of the chickens. Uh, we've got a huge oversupply of eggs, again, due to the current circumstances with the tourism industry, and it's just not worth it for us anymore. They're good-looking birds. <laughs> they are. Very good. Yeah, they live a good life. But don't go ringing the fat belly farm just now because he was inundated with offers to take thousands of chickens. La Nina, which is something we've been talking about uh, all of last year, is now bringing record-breaking rain to South Australia, which has been deluged across the north and west parts of that state, and it could set some farmers up for the entire year. Yeah, so that's over in the state's west. The Kimber district on Air Peninsula received between 200 and 300 millimetres seven days ago. There was just red water everywhere, <laughs> gushing over paddocks and over roads. For Buckleboo, that was the most rain ever recorded in one day in 100 years of their record keeping. But the rain, as I said, washed away roads and fences. And Buckleboo farmer Tristan Baldock says the amount of rain was quite incredible. You know, as a community, we're going to have to be pretty patient for the next two months as council try and do that. Uh, we've obviously got gutters through through paddocks, but thank God for no-till farming systems um, have held things together pretty well. But, yeah, lot, lots, of, lots of fences. Um, there's many dams around the district that have blown their banks. They just couldn't, couldn't cope with that volume of water. And in South Australia's north, sheep grazier Justin Nunn is at Waltana Station in the Flinders Ranges. He says it's a welcome sight to see so much rain coming down. You know, you wait a long time to see a rain like this. After such a long dry period, you know, it's going to get a lot of feed and that going and uh, hopefully looking to a good year. What's the uh, feeling like there at the station? Oh, yeah, we're very happy here. The kids are out playing in the puddles and my son, he sort of didn't see rain for about the first four years of his life, so he's pretty excited about it. (laughs) That is great to see. And it's also great to see that rain has broken a drought that was stubbornly still going in Queensland. Yeah, so for graziers in Queensland Central West, they received the biggest drenching in more than 10 years. Some of the biggest rainfall totals were, say, 120 millimetres in the Huendon area. Winchester Station near Richmond, Rob Evers says without this rain, he would have had to sell his entire herd of cattle. (laughs) I think I'm like every other grazier in the country that's hanging out for rain. It's the most exciting sound to hear that rain coming down on a corrugated iron roof. Uh, There's no sound quite like it, I don't reckon. And to look out through the windows and just see the the rain sort of falling down on your dry, parched country, there's no better scene than that either, I can tell you, particularly when you have cattle that that are doing a little bit tough. Isn't that a nice setup for 2022? It is, and it's amazing because just west of that region in, I think, 2017 around Julia Creek, they got a similarly large inundation that was potentially much more rain than anyone wanted that killed quite a few cattle. Yeah, no, a better situation this time around. Absolutely. Serena, thank you so much for 2022's first wrap of Rural News. Thanks, Clint. This week, we're fossicking for volcanic stones in central Queensland. While they might not look that impressive from the outside, when split open, they can reveal a colourful gem-filled centre. 
We'll venture to the mighty Murray to meet a South Australian couple who've spent years converting an old ship's lifeboat into a river cruiser. Now they're using it to show off their Riverland home with river cruising tours. And we'll discover what sparked a chicken breeder's love of animals. Parents worked at the Melbourne Zoo. (laughs) And my father was an elephant trainer and my mother was a vet. And oh my goodness, I went to that zoo every night. Every night I would go there. I mean, not only did I get free rides on elephants and I understood elephants, but I got to handle baby cubs. Now I look back and I think, wow, that set me up for an incredible ride. Sounds like a dream childhood. And we'll hear more about that incredible ride and how an affinity for animals led to a passion for breeding heritage hens. That's coming up. First today, we're learning about a family business that stood the test of time. When the Lee family set up shops selling plants and flowers in regional New South Wales in the 1930s, they could hardly have imagined it would still be trading 90 years later. The store's longevity has been largely thanks to a hard-working matriarch, as reporter Emma Siosian discovered. So, there it is. Outside an old-fashioned nursery and florist in country New South Wales hangs a weathered sign that's been there for decades. It features a quote by 19th century poet Minnie Ormonier, which says, When the world wearies and society does not satisfy, there is always the garden. Hello, I'm Emma Siosian. I'm here at Taree in the Mid-North Coast region where this family business has been trading continuously for an impressive 90 years. Now at its heart is 84-year-old Pauline Lee who's been involved for nearly 50 years and has no plans to put her feet up anytime soon. I just like a challenge. I don't like to be beaten. When you work all your life you don't have big social outings. You just have what you have at work and your family, which are very important. As Pauline walks among rows of potted plants and flowers, she reflects on her early days in the business, which she was launched into in 1974 after marrying Darrell Lee, who worked there with his family. Coming to work for the first time, not knowing anything about it, that was challenging, I can tell you. You learn as you went. (laughs) Boy, did you ever. It was Daryl Lee's grandmother, Minnie Elizabeth Lee, who started the store in Taree in 1931 and later transferred it to her son, Preston Lee. In 1932, Preston and his wife Lillian, Daryl's parents, opened a shopfront for the store and ran it as a mixed business, selling fruit, vegetables, flowers and confectionery made by Preston. In 1939, they moved to a larger block just outside the town centre where the store continues to trade today. The family has many old photos at the shop which capture the store's beginnings. That's what the front of the shop in the corner with the books are. That's what it used to look like. That's um, granddad that's with all the lollies and Beck's powders and yeah. God knows what else. <laughs> they sold everything. Yeah, and that was in the corner where the shelves are still actually there. We've just covered them over. Pauline says the business has become a big part of her life, especially since Daryl passed away in 2008. Having somewhere to go every day. When your husband's not there anymore, you've got to get up every day and do something. 
Her daughter, Tarina Hosgood, also joined the business about 35 years ago. I've been here from around about 1987. Yeah, yeah so I've been here practically my whole working life. Sometimes I wonder why I'm still here, but and people will say, you know, you've never moved away, you still work with your mum, but we get on pretty good. I've become close to the customers too. Um, yeah, I like what I do. If people ask me often, is there something else you'd love to do? And I can't really think of anything off, off the top of my head that I wouldn't want to do other than flowers. Yeah. The nursery had just moved to its current location at the start of World War II. Local researcher and co-founder of Midcoast Stories, Janine Roberts, says the family played an important role during the war effort. So they had to grow fruit and veggies as part of the war effort. They couldn't, it wasn't just selling plants or whatever, it was very specialised. And after the war, then they expanded again. And one of the innovations that this shop had was you used to, um, customers used to come to nurseries at the time and go, oh, I'd like a broccoli plant or something like that. And so it would be ordered and they'd wait and it would come back. But the Lees were one of the first in this area anyway to actually grow the plants on the property and the seedlings and people could go, okay, I want that, just like we know now. Pauline says trends in plants have changed over the years and continue to fluctuate. Well, they swing round like fashions. The first indoor plant Daryl gave me was a caladium, which I haven't seen for a long, long time. And I thought I'd killed it, but it went dormant and it came back the next year, of course, but I didn't know that. Uh, and the next one was a mother-in-law's tongue, and it's just come back into popularity again now, and that's all those years ago from 1974. One fella came in and he said, oh, it's a very eclectic shop, isn't it? <laughs> we thought that was a bit funny. I, I think they come back because they like the friendly atmosphere. We try and make them welcome. And are you, are you going to be doing this for a while longer? That's a $64 question. I don't know. I don't know how much longer I could do it. May I ask how old you are? 84. Pretty impressive. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think so. I just do it. It's not surprising that Cheryl Dingle has devoted years of her life to working with animals. Jengi, what are you doing? You're finding an egg, Jengi. Growing up with parents who trained elephants and handled lion cubs, Cheryl developed an affinity for animals from an early age. These days, it's chickens she loves the most. Believe it or not, for many, many years, I just loved chooks and um, I bred them. Hello, I'm Eden Henninen. I'm visiting Cheryl at her home in Malden in central Victoria, where she lives on a bush block and spends her days here researching and breeding heritage poultry. There's 22 pens, but you know, they're my breeding pens. I don't breed with every breed all the time. Each pen will get locked away for about approximately three months in peak season. And that's so that the rooster can have those five or six. Sometimes I go up to eight, but it depends on the rooster. The love of animals runs in your family, doesn't it? Where, where does this stem from? Parents worked at the Melbourne Zoo. <laughs> and my father was an elephant trainer and my mother was a vet. 
And oh my goodness, I went to that zoo every night. Every night I would go there. I mean, not only did I get free rides on elephants and I understood elephants, but I got to handle baby cubs. And oh, my mother used to raise baby cubs. That was one of her main jobs. What a magical childhood. Oh, it was amazing. I, I look back at it and I, I didn't think much of it at the time, as you could imagine, you know, a young girl growing up in these circumstances. But now I look back and I think, wow, that set me up for an incredible ride. I've been pretty serious at breeding all these breeds, but, you know, the Barnevelder was always my favourite. And the funny thing is it's it's still here and I have managed after a couple of years to find some good ones which I'm now breeding. So I'm happy with them, but I've still got a lot more work to do because I want to get them a little bit buffier, a little bit more. I know what I want to get with them, but that, that's coming. But I've fallen in love with these other breeds that weren't even in Australia. And so i went and got them. <laughs> talk, talk me through some of those. Well, Brahma, Vorworks, um, Lakenvelder and the Cream Leg Bar are the main ones. Can you explain, through, uh, talk me through some of those breeds and what they are? Well, for... the Brahma is the largest breed of all time, but it's also the quietest. Uh, and even though the, the egg layer is not as high as, say, a Barnevelder or any of the other leghorns or something like that, they do have a really good egg layer, about probably four to five eggs a week. And look, some people only want that, but it's their colours. They come in... I've actually got seven colours here, and then I've got all these Australian ones as well, which you can just see in that yard there. So they're a pretty amazing breed because they are so quiet, and children just love the fact that they hop in their lap and go, plonk. <laughs> and you, you imported some of these breeds, didn't I you? I imported all of those. I imagine you've been extremely busy during the pandemic. There's been a rise in the number of people purchasing backyard chooks. What's it been like for you? Oh, well, they've come up this drive fairly constantly. <laughs> and I'm lucky because I belong to two really good clubs, the Kitan Poultry Club, the Bendigo Poultry Club. And both of those have said, oh, you know, Cheryl's got this breed or Cheryl's got that breed. And then they've come out and have a look and said, oh, I want to breed them. And that's when I get a trio ready for them. A trio is a male and two hens. Sometimes you can get a quad, but I prefer the trio because then I've got my hens to sell off. Um, and they come out and they just love walking around and looking at every single pen and, and learning about the traits because not every trait suits every person. What sort of shed have you got? How much room have you got? Have you got a garden near your shed? There are some breeds that will just scratch a garden to bits. There are some breeds that actually have more sense than that, e.g. Barnevelder. Um, so there are... You know, some breeds that I just wouldn't put in a garden situation like that. And then there's the people, you know, their children. Um, are they afraid of chooks? Do they have a, a problem with chooks? Because if you've got a rooster, you don't want to be afraid of it. You, you want to be very comfortable with it. And I heard that you've been experimenting with breeding to find the perfect egg. Oh, perfect egg? Yeah. Have you found that? No, look, some breeds have more perfect an egg than others, but when you are breeding, you want to find the egg that has the exact amount of point, the exact amount of roundness, so that the chick, and that's my thing about breeding, the chick grows and moves inside that shell. If the, if the egg is long and elongated, you can imagine that little chick's not going to have much movement, and that's important for their growth and for the just growing to be a healthy bird. So if you want healthy chooks, choose good size, good shaped eggs. So you wouldn't choose a pullet's egg. A pullet's egg is where 
um, a young bird has laid the egg and it's generally smaller than what they do when they get older. Now they may be fertile but not ideal to breed with. They're generally that little bit weaker. They could have good shape but they're always smaller. I don't breed my chooks until they're at least, oh look, eight months to a year old. Chicken breeder Cheryl Dingle. She was speaking to our reporter Eden Henninen at her home in Malden in central Victoria. Before that, Emma Siosian introduced us to Pauline Lee, who at 84 years old has no plans to retire from her work in the family florist and nursery on the New South Wales mid-north coast. You're listening to Country Breakfast on RN. I'm Clint Jasper. Still to come, we'll hear how an old lifeboat salvaged from a seagoing ship has been given a new life as a river cruiser in South Australia. Riverland. And we'll meet a young Fossica finding priceless gems left over from the volcanic period. Hi, my name is Caleb. I'm hunting for gemstones and thunder eggs. Under the hot summer sun in central Queensland, primary school student Caleb is spending his school holidays fossicking in the dirt. There is a um, big one here. So how do you know that that is the thunder egg as opposed to just any ordinary rock? Um, you can sort of tell because it has this sort of bubble here. You can tell it apart. He hopes these unusual volcanic stones he's unearthed, known as thunder eggs, might reveal a hidden treasure when cracked open. So I'm going to first clean them off, which I already have done. And then you're going to slice it, get it sliced to see what's inside? Yeah. Okay, what are you hoping to find? Um, really? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I would say I definitely have at least more than one. Hello, I'm Inga Stunsner, here at Mount Hay. This area, at the base of an ancient extinct volcano, is a well-known destination for finding these stones, known as thunder eggs. Don Kays runs the Gemstone Tourist Park here, about a 30-minute drive west of Rockhampton. He says the thunder eggs, a remnant from volcanic activity, are a popular find for keen young fossickers. They originate from lava, and Mount Hay is the ancient volcano here, and we're nestled in at the base of that on a remnant section of the lava from that volcano, and it's a type of lava known as rhyolite. Rhyolite as a lava is made up of clay minerals, so it actually came out like a super hot mud, but it was also charged full of gas from the eruption, so that created all these bubbles within the lava, and that flowed out and then cooled and solidified. Well, in that stage, the gases that were in there had formed the structures, but then it cooled and cracked, and that allowed the gases to leave, leaving all these voids, and that's when later, in the cooling down periods of the volcanic activity, water that was very rich with minerals has then been able to create mineral solutions that seep down and penetrate through the cracks and fill the gas cavities. So that gives you that bubble then with its gem-filled centre, you hope. Yeah, so we're fortunate that a big percentage of them did fill and they're quite interesting because you don't know what you're going to get. Every time you cut one, 
it's a surprise. And yeah, you're just always looking and you know, sometimes you'll cut a stone and I've been cutting stones for 40 years and I'll cut them and I'll just go, wow, you know. Sometimes they're that nice, they just take your breath away, you know. So was and, that, I guess, the, the beauty and, and what people really love about Thunder Eggs, that surprise? Yeah, it's a, because it's a lucky dip, that surprise package, yeah. It doesn't look very much from the outside, a little bit of a rounded looking rock, but what beauty can be within is quite amazing sometimes, yeah. So you've said you've been doing this for more than 40 years, yeah. so you would have seen a lot of kids yeah. trekking through here. <laughs> Do you ever yeah. Yeah, get sick of it, or is there oh, always No, you don't get sick of cutting. It's a good way of chilling out, you know. You, you get on the saw and you just cut, and you're just as expectant as the people who have found the stones, you know, as the, waiting for that something nice, you know, the surprise. In terms of, um, you know, just with the gemstones and the thunder eggs here, will they ever run out? Not in my time. Yeah. <laughs> Got a while to go yet. The biggest drama that will be faced in later years will be the fact that where the buildings are situated, right at the top of the hill, that's the top on top of the lava flow. <laughs> and it all comes back through underneath. You know, it's not a very big area that we have. And so one day we'll have to come back and, you know, I don't think we'll be able to leave the building up on a stilt of earth and dig all around it somehow. I think we'll have to move the building at some point in time, but I'm not going to worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> they, down the track, they can worry about that. Mm. But no, the whole top of the hill does contain them. So, it is, you know, like my father started this off 59 years ago, you know, 60 years ago when he first started hunting around here and uh, the amount of thunder eggs that people have taken away in those times and if you could have seen some of those stones they're amazing you know and and you still get amazing stones we don't get as many bigger size stones today as they did then doesn't matter the size they can be the size of your thumbnail and it could be the most incredible thing you know so what are some of the the colors that that you've seen uh, well today I just cut one there and it was a uh, a red, maroon red, and then it's it's the colour of the agate. You get blues, you get browns, you get reds, you get yellow occasionally. Blue is the most common colour probably, or frequent colour, put it that way, and it can be in different shades. But then the other thing is thunder eggs come from different layers, so the surrounding mass has different colours. So the contrast it's, they're always varying, and that's that. That gives it more variety of play, of colour, and stuff. The contrasts, you know, so it makes mm. them interesting that way. And more, yeah, yeah, more of a lucky dip. Oh, um, yeah. Are they? Can they be valuable? It's worth what somebody wants to pay, I suppose, when it comes to thunder eggs, because they're fun to collect. But I guess the value is is what families coming in, doing the fossicking, yeah. and then the yeah. surprise when they cut it open. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a million dollars, you know. The, expression on kids faces you know when they see what they found you know that's that's enough isn't it at their home in south australia's riverland james and sandra schober are getting on with some renovation work they're updating their nearly century old kitchen this job was put on hold for several years while the pair pursued a passion project, transforming a 1960s lifeboat into a river cruiser. For James, who has spent his life on this stretch of the Murray River, bringing the old boat back to life 
was a dream project. I'm a local, born in the hospital here, so you couldn't get much more local than that. So I love the river, born on the river. Uh, we grew up about 400 metres away from the river, so it was pretty much my backyard. When I should have been doing in, inside the house doing homework, I was probably out there fishing or swimming. So His love of fishing and swimming on the river grew into a love of boats and a decent collection of tinnies. But in the old lifeboat, he saw something special. Bill McClellan was a carpenter in the early days. I'm talking before my time. In those days, you didn't go to Mitre Town and buy your timber. He actually went to Port Adelaide and bought it from the shipyards. And there was an old lifeboat there that came off a ship called the Jadovan, um, and it was sort of had a crack in it. So he actually bought it up at an auction and brought it back home to Wakery in the mid-70s, I guess. I've got a few other tinnies I go fishing in, but I just wanted a boat that I could sleep on and cook on. So this thing was a 28-foot lifeboat, and so I could probably do something with that. So I talked to Bill, and we sort of did a, a, a bit of um, negotiating on time and price. And for his wife, Sandra, James's ambitious project was not entirely unexpected. I think he'd just come back one day and sort of said, oh, hey, there's this lifeboat there, come and have a look, sort of thing. Um, I don't know. James does all sorts of interesting and fun things and it wouldn't have been surprising for me for him to come home and say that that's what he wanted to do. Hello, I'm Eliza Burlage. I'm chatting with James and Sandra at their rural property overlooking the mighty Murray. These days, the pair juggle their fruit growing and carpentry businesses with operating river cruises for tourists and locals on their lovingly restored boat. But it was a big job to get to this point. It took over 14 years. What I ended up, it wasn't the uh, plan A. It, it was about plan D, I think. Uh, originally, it was, I was going to just have a helm in the middle of it and some uh, running boards around the sides and deck chairs and stuff and went to Port Adelaide and saw all the big, nice big flash boats in the harbour there and I found a factory that actually built the top of the boat. So that changed the whole dimension of the life by what we, what we see today. And so what was to be a recreational boating vessel for yourself, James? You decided to turn it into something else. What are you and Sandra doing with the boat these days? I built it to survey, so Sandra and I are able to take passengers out now and like I'm a builder and I reckon I've got about 10 years left in my body for doing building work so I just wanted something to just a little bit easy on the body and who wouldn't want to get paid to go cruising on their own boat down the our beautiful river that we've got. We launched the boat in the year 2014, it took us about a year or so to get our business up and running so we'd started in 2015 so we're sort of in our seventh year now of cruising. Um, it's sort of been a bit of a sideline, James still does his carpentry business so uh, for the first few years we really were only sort of doing one a week, one a fortnight when we get sort of group bookings. Um, however the last sort of couple of years uh, since COVID um, in some ways has been a bit of a blessing for us because People are travelling, um, looking for things to do in their own state. Uh, and we've actually been really busy. As you're taking people cruising, you're also yeah, acting like tour guides, the eyes and the ears of the river to people who are visiting from interstate, from within the state and even locals. Uh, what sort of things are you pointing out to them on the route? We have a beautiful river. We've got big lookout towers up the top there. I also talk about the irrigation system. And of course, we cruise under big 100-foot limestone cliffs. We see a few canoe trees on the way through from Wakery and there's a couple down at Ramco as well, which we cruise through. 
So there's many things to see on our cruises. You've also been showing them some of the produce of the region on the boat as well. I understand you've been uh, growing and sharing some of your fruits on the boat. So we um, have a platter that's included in the cruise and uh, we try and get as much local produce as we can. Uh, and we have a small block here at Ramco, so we dry a lot of our own fruit, peaches and plums and apricots and things like that and quince paste so often have those as well and it's it's just lovely to be able to share that and say to the people you know I've got a lot of local produce plus our own produce on board as well. And I understand you've got some more uh, unusual fruits that uh, not everyone would come across as well sometimes. Uh, yes, so we have locusts um, as well. We're one of the main suppliers in the Riverland to Sydney market. So we have about 80 locust trees and we pick and sell them in October, November. So um, as well as having a really busy time on the river in October, November, we um, are flat out picking and packing locusts as well. But um, yeah, we love it. Sandra Schober and her husband James are running river tours along the Murray in South Australia's Riverland in an old lifeboat that James converted into a cruising vessel. They spoke with reporter Eliza Burlidge. Before that, Inga Stunzner took us to Mount Hay in central Queensland, a popular spot for gemstone fosking. You can see more on that story, including photographs of some of those thunder eggs that have been dug up from the base of the ancient volcano just head online to abc.net.au slash rn and look for Country Breakfast. You'll find more there on all of today's stories. 2021, the year many of us hoped we would return to normal. And in some way, we did. But to a different normal. We've changed the order of the day we roll into 2022. And RN will be with you all the way. From the moment something happens and you're trying to make sense of it all. RN has the people and the analysis to take you from the breaking stories to between the lines. Whatever's taking place, you can be part of it here. RN. Think bigger. We know how hard it's been for wool growers to get shearers this year. So why aren't more farmers looking to alternatives to help get their sheep shorn? Northern Victorian farmers Kevin Butler and Barry Milne have turned to semi-automated shearing machinery and they say with just one shearer and a roustabout, they can shear all of their sheep except the merinos. Eden Hedinen went along to Mr Butler's property to see how it works. So you pop his legs into position so he's restrained and then that gets tilted back again. The sheep actually want to go into the what we call a, a mild crush. It doesn't actually pin them but it sort of holds them. just holds them. And then you press a, a, re, a lever and the, the sheep rotates in the machine over and sits on its back on the platform. Um, once it's on the platform, we just slip the legs into the restrainers uh, and then we lift the, uh, the cover back and the sheep is exposed so we can shear it. The great thing is that there's no back pain because <laughs> you're in an upright position the whole time. And there's no pressure on you to hold the sheep, is there? It's compressed there for you? There is almost zero pressure. I would say it takes away 95% of the energy. So a shearer is like one of those tennis players at uh, the Australian Open right now. They only pay, play for three hours. A shearer has got to wrestle sheep for eight hours, taking as much energy. This as takes a, out 95%. And Barry, you've been a, a shearer for decades. What is this like for you now? Brilliant. 
<laughs> couldn't say anything more than brilliant. Why's that? Well, uh, no stress on me. I can just breeze away, shear without any strain at all, without having to visit a chiropractor <laughs> a couple of times a month. Yeah. I'd say we'd be able to get our 100 a day within a week or so, and I'm probably about 120 a day fellow now because I'm 68 years old. I'm not as good as I used to be. Watching you doing it then, though, it, it didn't take a lot of extra work that you do see as shearers yeah. do. Yeah, you're right, Eden. Look, I had to take the stand uh, to finish off the mob a few months ago, and I think I shore for three hours, and, and I was ready for Ward 9. I was really tired, <laughs> whereas um, Barry and I work on this all day, and, and I, as I said, you could go off and play golf or do gardening or... Um, you know, play with the grandkids. There's it, just no effort. In a time when there is a massive shearer shortage and people are experiencing fly strike and issues with the heat at the moment over summer, Barry, why do you think more people aren't adopting kind of semi-automatic ways of shearing their sheep? Most people are too traditional to change. That's simple as that. But yeah. when they see how this machine works, I think they'll change their mind. Mm. I, I think Barry's right. I just have a philosophy to dig the well before you need the water. And I, I know that, um, well, my two shearers are, are getting on like I am, and there's no young ones coming up to replace them. So where are we going to be in five years' time or ten years' time? So I've got a you know $70,000 wool clip. I'm happy to go off and buy a tractor or buy a few motorbikes. Why not vest into something like this? Um, I, I've never seen anything more crystal clear that we are in a state of absolute crisis in the shearing industry. And unless um, the powers that be start thinking differently, then there's going to be a lot of deaths in the paddocks through fly strike and a lot of good wool that won't be shorn in time. I'll be saving, saving myself a lot of money and uh, I'll be able to check their feet and drench them and do all those sorts of things that I usually have to bring them in the yards to do after the shearers are gone. Shearing instructor Tom Kelly says he's seeing more shearing technology used on farm and says it's extremely useful in a time with limited shearer numbers. They continually improve. The machines that I've seen are constantly changing. And I think they're sort of the concept as it is, without trying to get way beyond sort of having the person shear the sheep, it's, you know, they're, they're really just handling the sheep and taking the that side of it out of the shearing so and as sheep get bigger and you know, I think you'll see it develop and become more user friendly and you know people are there's some pretty good people getting stuck into it now so that they'll further develop it as well I think that I think it's sort of it's cracked through a barrier now that you will see it open up for sure. Shearing instructor Tom Kelly speaking there with Eden Hennenen. A Riverina farmer who lost his leg in a harvest accident in December is calling for improved phone reception after he and his wife struggled to communicate with emergency services despite living just 30 kilometres from Wagga Wagga. Aaron McCarthy from The Rock surprised first responders by keeping such a level head that he was able to shake their hands and introduce himself when they arrived on the scene. Aaron is now back at home with his family and says he hopes to be back farming as normal within 12 months. The father of two and his wife Tani sat down with rural reporter Olivia Calver. I'd done what I had to do, so I got out of the, got out of the machine and, and crawled away from it and and had my phone in my pocket. I thankfully didn't leave it in the tractor at the time. So I yeah, got my phone out and saw that it had at the top um, emergency call, calls only, so I rang triple zero. And we've got terrible service out here, so I had to... I think I yelled at him about 
about four times um, who I was, where I was and what had happened. And then I remember the operator asking if I could tourniquet it and I said I didn't, didn't really have anything. She suggested my shirt, so I took it off and um, wrapped it around my leg. Yeah, picked up the phone again and because um, the, the service is so poor out here, we, uh, the phone had dropped out. So crawled around the other side of the tractor because it was still running. It's um, an older tractor, so got to the door and thought, geez, how am I going to get up there and, and shut it off? But noticed the um, the linkage to the to the injector pump, so I, I shut the tractor off by that. Reached up and grabbed that, and then I looked back and and saw the the Ute with the the water card on the back of it. So I thought, I'll have to try and get back to that and get back to the house. But I crawled back a bit further and and just couldn't go anymore. So grabbed my phone again and and rung triple zero again. They said that the, there was a few few ambulance and, and coppers on the way, so they they hung up from me and, and rung my wife who was at the house. She she came out and found me. There wasn't much she could do except for, yeah, just wait with me until the emergency guys turned up. So the police turned up first, um, the high patrol, um, and they came running down. And I think one of the first things I said to them was, um, was, hey, how you going? I'm Aaron, nice to meet you. And um, yeah, put my hand out and shook his hand. Tani, where were you at this stage? Um, I was very lucky enough that Aaron's mum arrived on the property just as the ambulance were leaving. So I was lucky enough to jump into the second ambulance and, and offload George. And um, when we got to the airport, I, I begged and pleaded to fly with Aaron. And because I was uh, in a good state of mind, I think calm, collected, and not too pale or anything, they were happy to let me fly. So I actually flew to Canberra with Aaron and, um, and camped outside the theatre rooms overnight <laughs> and was there for him when he woke up. For Aaron to go through all of that and stay conscious the whole time is just a, a miracle. <laughs> I don't have any other words. A miracle, amazing, um, and a, a sheer amount of strength and determination in that that I, I can't even imagine. Um, and, I mean, like Aaron said, it is what it is and we just have to get on with life and make the most out of what we have and just be grateful that Aaron made it through and Aaron is alive and to tell his story and there are challenges of course there are extra jobs and demands but we have so much support from our family and friends just so lucky that you had your your phone on you at the time even though obviously reception is an issue we're definitely going to advocate for better service i i didn't i was in the house and got a phone call and as soon as i left the house my emergency services call dropped out and the last thing i heard a lady say was he might not respond he's in a bad way and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to find? And I'm throwing a naked baby into the car and driving around a property trying to find where Aaron would be <laughs> um, with no service and no advice on the other end of the line because we have no service. And we're only 30 k's from Wagga. Not like you're far out back, you're no. so close. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, like Tony said, we're only you know, 30 k's from, from a regional city. Um, you know, they're rolling. You know, trying to roll out 5G and, and whatever, and we can't even hold a, a 4G call near a near a regional centre. It's yeah, it's ridiculous. What's the experience been like in the last few weeks? Obviously, you're home now and you're adjusting to life that is very different. But how are you feeling about everything going forward and um, the farm and, and being here with your family? Um, yeah, adjusting to to home life's been. It's been a challenge, not being able to to do the th things I used to do, and but yeah, we're slowly slowly learning um, how to how to get through it all at home. So it's yeah, it's going fairly well. Dad's sort of nearly semi-retired, so he's given me a hand uh, quite a bit. Yeah, ongoing. Hopefully the 
we can get a prosthetic sorted soon in a few months. Hopefully it'll all get back to normal in another 12 months or so and I'll be able to do, do most things. How have you felt about the support that you and your family have been given from the wider community? There's obviously the GoFundMe that was set up raised close to $50,000 at last count. Um, yeah, the support is, has been amazing. Like, we didn't expect anything from, from anyone really, but it's, yeah, it's, it's blown our minds here how much support we have received. Imagine it doesn't come naturally to accept that sort of support, but obviously everybody's been there with you on the journey. Yeah, that's right. I guess it, it shows how many people you've affected some way in your life when, when you haven't realised it. Heard that some people jumped in to help harvest the rest of the crop, is that right? Um, yeah, the neighbour came over. Um, when he had a bit of spare time, he came over and finished it for me, which was, yeah, absolutely amazing. I'd borrowed my boss's truck to cart my weed in. Yeah, the truck was full when the accident happened, so he came out and grabbed the truck because he needed it and um, took my NGR card into the local grain storage and he yeah, managed to take a, a couple of loads of, of, I think, his canola in and, and pass that out to, to a few farmers to to get a bit of grain donated my way as well, which is, yeah, absolutely unreal. Aaron and Tani McCarthy speaking to Olivia Culver. And we know farmers in general have been campaigning for better mobile coverage for years now, and this story shows just how important that is. Farming on the land can be challenging at the best of times. Last year brought soaring land prices, mice plagues in the east and bushfires in the west. But what if you could farm food right next to the people who eat it? David Barnett Clement with this report. Behind the doors of a shipping container in the heart of a capital city, two acres worth of produce is being grown in a little over 100 square metres. So um, my name is Peter Handy. I'm on the owner of a controlled environment growing unit called Vertical Pastures. And we can grow lettuces, leafy greens, Asian greens, herbs, some root vegetables and some flowering plants as well. Yeah. And we're down by the waterfront in Battery Point yeah. in Hobart, yeah. about as far away from a farm as you can get in Tasmania. <laughs> Why choose this location? I know, it's, re- it's really funny because um, when people say to me, oh, where's your business? Um, where's your farm? Because I call it the farm. That's what it is. I'll say it's in Battery Point. They go, they look perplexed. And they're like, no, no, there's no farms in Battery Point. Yeah, yeah, I've got a farm in Battery Point. It's right on the waterfront. You should come and have a look sometime. It's really cool. So it, it's here because... I need to be as close to my clients and my customers, the chefs and restaurants of Hobart. I aim to use the least amount of food miles as possible and make this a super efficient and lean business. So even looking to do um, my deliveries on a bicycle or on an electric bike, maybe. The farm was designed and built by an American company and bought off the shelf. It's one of a growing number of urban farms in Australia. And it's all pre-manufactured. It is a shipping container, so it itself is its own packaging. It came here on a ship. It took about three months to get out here. And when it comes, you just unpack it all, and, and there's not much to put together. Technically, you're supposed to just plug it in and plug it into the water, plug it in electricity and go. Um, I had a little bit of difficulty here because um, it wasn't set up for Australian electrical standards, so I had to get that done. And So, yeah, so it is um, pretty much plug and play. You've got two acres worth of production fitted into a 40-foot container. Are you going to get another one? Uh, <laughs> that's the dream. Look, in the US, they've got them stacked on top of each other, so you've got the minimal footprint. But, yeah, that is the, the dream, mm. another one. How many people do you think walk down into this shipyard and think, oh, yeah, there's a farm in the corner? Uh, they'd have absolutely no idea. No. 
All right, shall we have a look? Yeah, let's come on, come on in and have a look. The seeds are grown in a pod, and it's very similar to what florists use holding their flowers in place. Like it's like a foam, and so those seedlings will stay in there for about 14 days. Once the seedlings are mature enough, they're then transplanted into the vertical towers, and the nutrients come from a drip emitter from the top of the tower, and they're filtered down the wicking strip onto um, all the plants. And the lights, um, the red and blue spectrum, are all that the plants need for photosynthesis. So it's super efficient. Can, can you describe for me what the lights actually look like? They're these huge panels. Oh, yes. I feel like I'm in a disco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, actually, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And it looks like um, a couple of scenes out of the Star Wars where I, I expect Darth Vader to come running down the, uh, the alley there and come and grab me. But, yeah, so it's like a big, long um, panel. Uh, there's um, red and blue spectrum panels. They're LEDs. They're super efficient and heat efficient, so they don't give off too much heat. Although there is an air conditioner inside this unit that runs 24-7. And all this tech delivers real benefits. Because the produce is grown inside, there's no need for pesticides, and the production process is itself more efficient. This farm will use 90 to 95% less water than traditional soil farming. And this type of efficient farming is exactly what we'll need in the future, according to science writer Julian Cribb. I've published five books dealing with the human existential emergency that is now affecting us all. And I guess, can you introduce me to your most recent book on this topic, Food or War? Yeah, Food or War is the second book I've written about the, uh, the looming world food crisis. Basically, it says that we have a big food problem coming because the combination of loss of water, loss of topsoil, climate change and overuse of poisons is going to more or less scupper uh, the agriculture that we know and love by the middle of this century. So we're going to have to change the nature of the way we produce food. And one of these new forms of agriculture, according to Julian Cribb, is urban farming. Not only are you producing food in proximity to the people who eat it, but humans themselves produce a lot of fertile waste. Well, basically, all the food that flows through the world's cities you know, is being gathered from thousands of kilometres away. People are consuming it or wasting it. And the nutrients from that food are either going down the sewer pipe or they're going into the, into the garbage tip. All that nitrogen, phosphorus, potash and micronutrients is being trashed. Now, that can't go on if we are to have a viable civilization. How far are we from that? vision of urban agriculture that you discuss in your book? Well, Australia's quite a way off because it's only just going to sink in that we might not be able to farm in a hot world. But, you know, cities like Singapore are already doing it. Countries like Holland are already doing it. All of the big cities of the world now have got significant developments in, in urban farming, hydroponics, aquaponics, biocultures, those sorts of things. And, and the growing of vegetables and fruits and things like that in the urban environment is taking off like wildfire. Urban farmer Robin Ailes ending David Barnett Clement's report with additional reporting from Lucy Cooper. Many thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAloon and Chrissy Miltiadu for helping bring Country Breakfast together this morning. And please stick around because my fabulous colleagues are standing by to bring you more top-notch radio right here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.